And at just about 11 o'clock, you are listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you all in just a few minutes. KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, Hear Me Speak. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, and it is Monday, the 15th of June, 2020. Glad to be with you tonight. 
whoever you are, wherever you might be, whenever you might be listening to this radio show, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. And sitting here in the studio, downtown Columbia, Missouri, up here in the Dalton building. Nice to be back here in the studio. And we do it every Monday, looking at the edges and the interesting stuff, science, technology, nature, art, music, medicine, history tonight. Sometimes strange and unusual, always interesting, usually pretty cool. You're listening to it. Hope you're doing well out there. It's Radio Orbit, and uh, things are good for me. Hope they're good for you. Welcome to the show, and I hope you're enjoying the evening. Another warm summertime night now in mid-Missouri. Don't have much of a moon up there. Getting thinner and thinner by the night. New moon in just a few days here. Uh, Good night to be doing some star watching. I'll talk a little bit about that when we do space weather in a little bit. But yeah, step on outside. It's warm, but nice night to go out and take a look Take a look, look outside and uh, out and above the surface of this planet and get yourself a little bit of perspective, okay? All right, yeah, good night to sit back and listen to Radio Orbit as well. Let me quickly say thank you to the wonderful gang that keeps it rolling around here 24-7, 365. Mr. Tim Pilcher, the captain of the ship, doing a great job as always, and all the staff and volunteers that help him out on mondays on the air we get things rolling with woody atkins the 2019 ameripolitan dj of the year and also the host of kopn's the real deal country show three to six p.m every monday bringing you more country than ever once again a great show today love the stuff that Woody brings to us every Monday, the Real Deal Country Show, Classic Country, Ameripolitan, Western Swing, lots of great interviews, and uh, just a real fun show. After that, we've got the Tech Radio guys. They they uh, they take over at 6 o'clock and keep us up to snuff on the wild and wacky world of advancing technology. I think we only do about a half an hour show tonight. Um, but they're still doing the program remotely. I don't know if Woody is or not. He's so good at producing his show from home that it's very difficult to tell if he's doing it uh, here in the studio or not. As opposed to me, it's very obvious when I'm not in the studio. But anyway, uh, I'm not sure what the tech radio guys do. I think they're still doing recorded stuff, and they had an, uh, a half an hour uh, program this afternoon. And we filled in with some other stuff up until 7 o'clock. Of course, Kelvin was here from 7 to 10. Jazz plus blues equals Goyatle. And then uh, wonderful stuff from the New Wave Radio Theater. Kelvin bringing us that as well. He does that every night, on Monday at least, from, uh, well, 7 to 10 for Jazz plus blues and then 10 to 11 for uh, for the radio theater program. And then at 11 o'clock, guess who takes over? Me. Yeah. Good music, good talk, good news. 89 and a half on the dial, streaming all around this nutty planet at www.kopn.org, your imagination station, KOPN Columbia. Big thanks to all of you for listening and participating. I appreciate all the feedback and uh, nice to hear from people. You can always get a hold of me via email. 
simple address, MikeHagan at MikeHagan.com. You can do that through the website as well. If you go to www.MikeHagan.com, you can just email me from there. You can go get a hold of me via Twitter. Again, just my name, Mike Hagan, and uh, Instagram. Very easy to find me. You can link to all those places up on the website as well. And you can also check out the Radio Orbit Forum that you can connect to right from the main page of the website there. And a little subreddit there that I maintain and share with about 250 other people. And we post and talk about stuff that we find interesting. And you can join us and do the same thing if you choose. Once again, all that stuff from the website at MikeHagan.com. All right. Last week, we had wonderful historical piece from the amazing Dick Gregory, uh, social icon, uh, activist, remarkable comedian, and just a damn smart man with some, with the, some really wise words that he shared with... Um, I think it was Laura Washington. Yeah, Laura Washington, who was the Sun-Times journalist from uh, the Chicago newspaper, which is now defunct. I don't think the Sun-Times exists any longer. But anyway, Laura Washington had the pleasure and the privilege of... uh, talking with Richard Claxton Gregory, Dick Gregory, back in 2010, and I shared that with y'all last week, and I'm sure glad that I came across that because I thought it was really worth listening to, especially during these particular times where we're having such a difficult time finding common ground uh, in the social and cultural sphere. Um tonight yeah so anyway uh yeah dick gregory last week and we had the music of the pumas black pumas by the way uh incredible music certainly very uh popular i imagine that many people that heard the show or that hear it uh, after the fact here will be familiar with the music i tend to not play uh music uh, musicians or bands that are that popular uh but it just seemed appropriate last week so if you missed that program it is not up on the web yet i had a problem with the mp3 recording from the station i do have a backup copy of it and i'm still i I just haven't uh, quite gotten it ready to put up i'll have that done in the next day or so and probably go up at the same time as this program tonight goes up as a matter of fact so anyway uh i'll have that for you in a day or two dick gregory and the black pumas that was radio orbit last week and Once again, on the website, that'll be in the archives along with all the other old shows and uh, music archives as well for uh, information on the uh, artists that are featured on the program. All right, I mentioned the Radio Orbit Forum. We talked a little bit about what we did last week. What did I say? Um, Oh, I didn't mention the podcast. Yeah, podcast is up and operational. It's been a long time coming and really interesting because uh, there's a a gentleman that helped me get a podcast together in the very early days of podcasting, actually, back in about, well, I guess around 2006. 
or so, maybe 2004. I don't know how far they go back. But anyway, uh, the original Radio Orbit uh, broadcast here on KOPN began in 2004, and I broadcast till about mid-2008. And those earlier programs, about halfway through, I think somewhere through 2006, are available on most podcast platforms and have been for uh, for you know 15 years. Um, and then there's a big gap, about a 10-year gap. And I just restarted the podcast in a more uh, modern uh, fashion. And once again, you can find that where you find most of your podcasts, most of the major podcast platforms or providers will uh, will be able to come up with it. But just look for Radio Orbit uh, with Mike Hagan, and you can subscribe to the podcast. And every time one of these shows goes up on the web, it will magically appear in your podcast player, and you can listen to it whenever you damn well please. Really cool, amazing we can do that. And I'm glad that I finally got it together. So anyway, there's a couple of the most recent ones up there and be a couple more in a day or two. All right. Yeah. Check out the podcast. You can link to that as well. Right from the uh, from the Radio Orbit website. Just go to MikeHagan.com. There's a couple of big buttons that say subscribe to the podcast and you can do it that way. All right. Okay. Uh, Tonight we are going to do a little bit of a tribute to Geronimo, the Apache chief, mescalero, medicine man from the Badonkahe band of the Apache tribe. He died on February 17th, 1909, but he was born on June 16th, which is coming up here in about 45 minutes. So I decided because he was born on June 16th that we would do a special on some Native American stuff tonight, which is always close to my heart and certainly one of the more oppressed uh, peoples in North America, not getting a whole lot of attention and really never do um, as much as the civil rights movement <clears throat> uh, has moved from the 1960s through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and now the new civil rights movement that is really exploding, as a matter of fact, right now and has been for the last uh, few months and slowly building over all those years, of course. But even so, uh, the Native Americans are still pretty much invisible. And it's really uh, sad and un- unfortunate and, uh, and unfair. But the world isn't a fair place, and I think a lot of people are starting to realize that if they didn't realize it a while back. So anyway, tonight, Geronimo, his given name in the Apache tongue was pronounced Goyatle, uh, the one who yawns, interestingly enough, is the way that that name is described. Once again, born in June 1829, died February 1909. He was a leader and a medicine man of the Apache tribe. He joined forces with a number of other Apache bands over the course of 
15 or 20 years from the mid 1800s toward the end of that uh, that century and fought against uh, the US military and actually the Mexican military as well in uh, what we would now consider New Mexico, Arizona, and some of the northern Mexican states like Chihuahua and Sonora. At any rate, uh, he was uh, very well known and uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about Geronimo Goyatle a little bit later in the program tonight. Okay. Yeah. So uh, got that for you. We've got music by a band called Trills, T-R-I-L-L-S, who I discovered very recently and I really like. We're going to hear music from the band Trills throughout the program tonight. We started the program off with a song that was called Speak Loud. And I think we're going to play the opposite of that right now. This one is called Hush. And you'll listen to it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. I'll be back with you. And we'll roll on down the night. Hush, little 
All right, another one there from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Trills. That one's called Hush. We'll hear more from Trills throughout the program tonight. And you listen to it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. That's Columbia, Missouri, if you're listening from outside of the traditional listening area, perhaps over the Internet, as I can see many people are listening tonight. I appreciate you no matter where you are as you're listening to the program. And many of you will also hear this program after the fact via the podcast or downloading the program from the website. And all of you, welcome to the show, and I'm glad you're here with me as well. All right. Um, I was going to do this thing from Goyatle, uh, from um, uh, Geronimo right now, but I think I'll do space weather and then we'll do that piece for Geronimo, which is about 45 minutes long, maybe a little bit less than that. And then we'll come back and I've got a few other things to share with you tonight. A couple things that are kind of funny and a couple other things that are pretty serious. And then we got a bunch of news to talk about and we'll open the phone lines in fact, we'll do that now, and if anybody wants to call while I'm doing space weather, they're welcome to do that. 573-443-8255, 573-443-7380. If you want to call and become a part of the program, feel free to give those numbers a buzz, and I'll keep my eye on the phone here and see if I can't grab it uh, if you give me a call. Once again, that's uh, area code 573 here in Missouri. 443-8255 and 573-443-7380. Either one of those will get you right here into the studio with me, okay? All right. Interesting story in space weather. A couple of them actually today. Uh, I'll start with this one. Um, Earth is about to cross a fold in the heliospheric current sheet, a vast wavy structure in interplanetary space separating regions of opposite magnetic polarity. The crossing, called a solar sector boundary crossing, is expected on June 16th, that's tomorrow, and could trigger minor geomagnetic activity around Earth's poles. That would mean alerts for those looking for Aurora Borealis and uh, Australis Borealis. If you want to see the northern or the southern lights, Next couple of days might be very good for that. But I'm interested in what this thing is uh, a little bit deeper than that. Uh, the heliospheric current sheet. It sounds interesting in the sense that it's a very large structure in interplanetary space. That means in, outside of the, uh, you know, the orbit of our planet uh, and the sun. So it's, it's, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, it's large... Um, object, I guess. I'm not sure if that's the right way to phrase it, but let's read a little bit about the, uh, the concept of the heliospheric current sheet. It's very interesting. It looks like some sort of wavy, magnetic, twisted... Uh, gosh, I don't know. It's hard to describe, but there's some artist's uh, impressions of the thing here, but I'll read a little bit here. The heliospheric current sheet separates regions of the solar wind where the magnetic field points toward or away from the sun. The complex field structure in the photosphere simplifies with increasing height in the corona until a single line separates the two polarities at about 2.5 solar radii. That line is drawn out by the radially accelerating solar wind 
to form a surface similar to the one shown in this idealized picture, which you can't see. Uh, the surface is curved because the underlying magnetic pattern rotates every 27 days with the sun. So it's basically um, a sort, if you can imagine um, like, a, like a sheet, uh, like a bed sheet, and if you kind of wave it with your hands, you know how, to, how you can kind of make a bed sheet kind of wave like that. Imagine the sun throwing off energy and it creates a wave in space that's like that, just like a, like a sheet, just kind of waving. But it moves throughout, uh, you know, it moves throughout the heliosphere, um, which is, you know, the, essentially the entire solar system. And what's happening is our planet, Earth, is tomorrow uh, going to actually pass uh, from one region of the heliospheric sheet into uh, a, a, a neighboring region which has opposite magnetic polarity. And that seems like it would it would be significant. I don't know. Maybe it's. I mean, they say that you know it might trigger some aurora borealis, but it seems that maybe there would be other things related to that as well. Um, because anytime you're switching polarities and you have large structures like that, it seems like maybe there's a lot of energy involved. I don't know that much about it, but I'm just uh, I'm just sort of speculating here. But it's very very curious and and, and cool. So anyway, all right, more news about comets. I've talked quite a bit about comets over the last few months because there have been a number of them that were supposed to be very exciting and then kind of turned out to Peter and, 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 and not be quite as impressive as we, we had hoped. Um, but here we go again. There is a comet that is moving toward the sun and it possibly could become a naked eye comet after... It passes the orbit of Mercury, which will happen in about two and a half weeks. That will be on the 3rd of July, thereabouts. There is a, uh, an astronomer by the name of Michael Matiazzo who photographed this new comet that has been identified as Neowise C2020F3. And Mr. Matiazzo... Uh, got some wonderful photographs of Comet Neowise on June 10th from Swan Hill in Australia. I'm looking at some of these photos on a website that's called spaceweather.com where I glean much of this information that I talk with you about during this particular segment of the program. At any rate, I uh, appreciate the, uh, the, the work that those folks over at Space Weather do. All right, um, here's a quote from uh, Mr. Matsuyatsu. Pushing the limits of comet observation, I had to leave home to find a clear horizon. When I took the picture, Comet Neowise was very close to the sun and only five degrees above the local horizon. Its visual magnitude was near seven. Now, as you know, magnitudes are, uh, are brighter the lower they get. So if you have a, a magnitude of positive seven, that's not very bright. Um, at any rate, he said its visual magnitude was near positive seven below the threshold for, for naked eye visibility. It might, not look it might not look like much now, but this comet could blossom in the weeks after perihelion, which of course is the closest approach to the sun, 
Um, forecasters say Comet Neowise might become as bright as a second or third magnitude star. Northern Hemisphere observers would be able to easily see it in the evening sky about a month from now, in mid-July, if it, uh, if it actually does uh, kind of pay off, as we'll, as we'll see. Um, at this point, uh, maybe you all are feeling a little bit of deja vu because I've talked about this, as I mentioned, quite a few times earlier this year and toward, uh, well, and over the last half of 2019. Uh, there was a very similar forecast for uh, both Comet Atlas, uh, which was C2019Y4, in March and Comet Swan C2020F8 in May and both comets made their way toward the sun and instead of blossoming kind of broke apart and uh, the intense solar heat and radiation just uh, uh, instead of lighting them up and making them more exciting basically just just destroyed them so uh, let's see, uh, Mr. Matsiazzo, uh, who is one of the world's most experienced amateur comet observers, thinks that Comet Neowise could turn out better. Here's a quote again from Mr. Matsiazzo. I'd say there's a 70% chance this comet will survive perihelion, he says, basing his guess on the stability of the comet's light curve, which sets it apart from comets Atlas and Swan. Hopefully, Comet Neowise could be a case of third-time lucky for the Northern Hemisphere observers. We'll know soon enough. On June 22nd, the comet will enter the field of view in SOHO's C3 coronagraph. SOHO is a satellite that has been uh, observing the sun for many, many years, and you can actually look online and get real-time, for the most part, um, images from the SOHO satellites in many different filters. Uh, at any rate, uh, it's a uh, space-based instrument that blocks the glare of the sun and can reveal nearby stars as well, uh, along with planets and, and comets. So for a whole week uh, after June 22nd, astronomers will be able to monitor Comet Neowise as it approaches the orbit of Mercury. Uh, you can do this through the, uh, through the SOHO coronagraph. Uh, and if it falls apart... Um, we'll be able to watch that as well in those, in those images. Same thing if it survives, and it'll be more exciting perhaps if it does. So stay tuned for updates. I'll talk about that uh, again next week on, uh, on the show next Monday, okay? All right, let's see what the All Sky Fireball Network has to say. As I mention often enough, there are a number of systems that keep their eyes on the skies all around this planet, looking for meteorites and fireballs and uh, meteors and comets and anything that might be flying around this neck of the woods and having a chance to come close to our planet or interact even perhaps with, uh, with our orbit. And... In the last 24 hours, there have been nine sporadic fireballs that have been identified by the NASA All-Sky Camera Network. Um, let's see what we have for near-Earth asteroids and potentially hazardous asteroids. As of the 16th of June, we have 2,037 potentially hazardous asteroids. Most recently, what's today? Today is the 15th, going on the 16th. A couple days ago, we had 
a reasonably good size rock passed by us on the 13th of June. Uh, an asteroid designated 2020 LC passed about 12 lunar distances from the planet, but about 50 meters across. And that's a pretty good size rock. I'm glad it wasn't too close. Uh, we had a couple of other ones that, you know, 20, 30, 40 meters across, 3.2 lunar distances, 5.6 lunar distances. A lunar distance is about 250,000 miles, plus or minus. And uh, so if I say three lunar distances, you know, 750,000 miles away from the planet, which really seems like a long way, but not that far in cosmic terms. Uh, looking down the list here, up until August, doesn't look like we've got anything coming real close. Certainly nothing real big, none that we know of. We'll keep our eyes on those as well. But as for now, it looks like the skies are clear out and beyond planet Earth. All right, let's see what we've got happening with star clusters and night glowing clouds and the occultation of Venus. That's happening this week as well. All right, today is, I'm going to skip Monday. Let's go to Tuesday, and we can talk about Uranus, which will be about 10 degrees high in the east at about 4.30 this morning, well, on Tuesday morning. If you're still with me at the end of this program, it'll be 2 o'clock in the morning. Another two and a half hours from then, you'll be able to see Uranus about 10 degrees high in the east, and the magnitude will be about 5.9, which is not real bright, but you should still be able to see it with the naked eye. Um, the uh, identifying object will be the moon because the, uh, the disk of Uranus will, will just be a little bit to the left of the moon, maybe 10 degrees. So if you look a little bit above the horizon to the east and then find the moon, Look to the left of the moon, and you should be able to uh, identify Uranus. The, uh, the morning of the 16th will show the moon to be about 20% lit and getting a little bit more narrow every day. And it'll be in the northeastern part of the constellation Pisces. There are some other bright stars that'll be pretty close that you might try to identify the magnitude 2 Hamal in Aries, and a star called Menkar, which is in the constellation, uh, the constellation Cetus, which is about a 2.5 magnitude star. Uranus will appear about halfway on a line between those two bright stars. Um, if you look farther to the east, you'll see the famous star cluster called the Pleiades, whose dipper shape should be relatively easy to find as the sky is brightening uh, tomorrow morning. Later tomorrow, the moon will pass about four degrees south of Uranus um, in the evening. That'll be about 10 p.m. Eastern time, about nine o'clock here in the middle of the USA, and you can figure out the times accordingly depending on where you're at. For those who prefer evening observing, uh, there's another comet that is designated PANSTARS C2017T2, which is less than one degree from 
the spiral galaxy M109 on Tuesday night. That can be located in the constellation Ursa Major, which is uh, near the cup of the Big Dipper, if you're familiar with that particular constellation. And both of those are visible pretty much all night from the uh, northern United States. All right, Mercury on Wednesday, the 17th, will go stationary at just about 3 o'clock here in Missouri, about 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The smallest planet in our solar system and the one that's closest to the sun will be about 10 degrees high uh, around sunset, and it'll disappear below the horizon within an hour. Whether you're able to spot Mercury or not, you may see something else, um, something that we call noctilescent clouds, noctilucent, I'm sorry, uh, noctilucent clouds. And that, that, that means night glowing, noctilucent uh, just means night glowing. And this is something that's kind of, kind of more common in the warmer seasons of the year. And these particular types of clouds form when ice crystals from uh, high above the Earth uh, combine with high-altitude dust particles. Uh, this is, you know, some 40, 50 miles above the surface of the Earth. And these clouds will appear to glow um, even as other clouds, which are perhaps lower, way lower, uh, will be much darker. And they're really not unique to Earth, apparently. Um, the Curiosity rover, for example, that uh, has been exploring on Mars has imaged noctilucent clouds actually uh, above the skies or in the skies uh, above the red planet of Mars. Um, so anyway, that's something that's relatively common this time of year. Thursday, what do we have going on? Well, Venus will be appearing in the morning sky now after the inferior conjunction that occurred on the 3rd of June. On the 18th, on Thursday morning, the bright magnitude negative 4.3 planet of Venus will be about 4 degrees high, just about 45 minutes before sunrise. And it'll be about 11 degrees to the east of the old crescent moon. The moon will be getting quite a bit smaller. And if you have binoculars or a telescope, you'll be able to see that, you'll actually be able to see uh, the actual disk of, of Venus and see that it's actually kind of like a half, uh, half, uh, well, I don't know exactly what, uh, what the shape might be described as, but you can actually see that it's not just a, uh, you know, like a, a little dot. So anyway, um, on, uh, on the, on the morning of Friday, uh, the moon will pass in front of Venus, uh, and it will be visible in some parts of the world. And that's called an occultation where something covers something else up or passes in front of. Um, so the moon will occult Venus and 
if you can view it, it'll be cool. Whether you can or can't, you'll find the moon much closer to our sister planet, Venus. So make sure to come back in 24, 24 hours or so and see how that has changed, okay? All right. Uh, once again, that happens on Friday, the 19th of June. The moon will occult Venus. Um, you'll be able to see that in northwestern Europe and northern and eastern Canada. If you live here in the U.S., um, catching the planet at the moment where it reappears from behind the moon uh, will be very challenging because of the low altitude. It's only going to be possible for those in the northeastern U.S., maybe Massachusetts, that part of the country, um, where the moon will rise at about 4 o'clock in the morning, about 3.55 a.m., and when that happens, it's just a barely you know, one degree um, above the horizon um, when the planet begins to reappear. So it might be very difficult to see that from pretty much anywhere in North America except uh, the further northern regions, uh, regions of, uh, of Canada. So anyway, that's about what's happening in uh, the skies above our heads here this week. And we'll... Uh, take a look at the news here see if there's any news in astronomy that i want to mention to you inside the quest to use cosmic explosions as distance markers that's something that'll probably end up posted over there on the radio orbit forum uh was there really a mutiny aboard the skylab space station you know there have been rumors for many many decades um that there was a mutiny of sorts that took place in the skylab space station back in the 70s um there are lots of references to the event and uh here's an article about maybe whether that actually occurred or not what else do we have here space tourists will face big risks yeah no kidding uh, nasa perseverance rover how it works and what it will do another rover that's heading to mars what the Juno spacecraft taught us about Jupiter. That was years ago. Uh, four years ago or so, we had a spacecraft that was called Juno that went into orbit around Jupiter, and it has been slowly uh, revealing secrets of the largest planet in our solar system for about four years now, and there's a very interesting catalog of some of the things that have been revealed over those years. We'll post that up on the forum as well. Lots of other things to be talked about, but I think that's enough for now. Let's take a little break here. Play another piece of music from our featured musicians of the evening. Here's one that we can play in honor of space weather. It's called Super Blue Moon, and the band is called Trills. It's Mike. You're listening to it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, streaming on the web at kopn.org. And for me, information at www.mikehagan.com. Let me mention also that KOPN is supported in part by Ragtag Cinema. Ragtag Cinema announces a new service, Ragtag Cinema at Home. It's a collection of resources that pairs children's films with ready-made curriculum developed by Ragtag's community partnerships and education team. More information can be found at ragtagcinema.org. All right, once again, this is Trills and a song called Super Blue Moon. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia. In your heart of hearts, there was 
a beautiful one lovely song there from our featured musicians of the evening they're called trills now it's called super blue moon loving it it's mike you're listening to radio orbit on klpn columbia 89.5 fm find me on the web at www.mikehagan.com and you can also find the archives there of all these previous programs that we've done over the years and information about the musical artists that have been featured as well and you can also subscri- uh, subscribe to the podcast there at the website. <clears throat> and every time we put one of these shows up on the web, it'll show up there in your in your player. Okay, more from Trills a little bit later in the program. I've got a special piece that I 
found from the History Channel from quite a few years back on the Apache leader Goyatle, better known as Geronimo. I'll play that in a few minutes here. We'll give you a few minutes to call, though. Uh, if anybody, I'd like to kind of start that right around the beginning of the midnight hour, which is about 11 minutes from now. So I'll see if I can burn a little bit of time here. Maybe one of you or two of you or three of you can help me out. Give me a call here at 573-443-7380 or 573-443-8255. Either one of those will get you here in the studio with me if you'd like to give me a holler and share something that's on your mind. I'd be glad to chat it up with you for a minute or two. If not, I'll try to keep it going here for a few minutes anyhow. All right. Um, I did mention the website and I would like to say that if you have anything that you'd like to share contributions, you know, if you've got stories that you'd like to share and maybe see talked about on the radio program, uh, you know, a great way to do that is to, is to uh, become a member over there at the Radio Orbit Forum, and then you can just post the story right there, and I'll see it because I go over there quite often and look at what's happening over there in the forum. And then uh, a lot of that stuff that's posted over there in the forum eventually comes out here on the radio show. But if you're an artist and you have visual art that you'd like to share, we can put some uh, links and some photos up on the website. If you're a poet, love to post any of your work and maybe read a little bit of it on the air. If you are a musician and you have music that you'd like to see uh, or hear, perhaps featured on the program, you can share that with me as well. Very easy to get a hold of me once again through the website. Just send me an email through the website or you can get a hold of me via Twitter, Mike Hagan at all those places. And if it's appropriate, yeah, we'll share it with other people. Okay. All right. Um, what else do we have to say here? Well, maybe a little bit about what's been going on and what we'll have coming up in the next few weeks and, and months. Uh, back in the studio now, first, uh, first of the month, I guess it was, when kind of maybe, maybe a week before. I guess this is about the third week in a row that I've been back here in the studio and very pleased to be back here in the KOPN radio station and sitting behind the microphone. I didn't do a great job of producing programs during the height of the COVID uh, pandemic. And I guess we really don't know if it was the height or not. Uh, we're we're, we're going to find out. Here in Missouri, things pretty much got back underway, at least. I won't say to normal, because things have been uh, very strange still. I mean, all of the restaurants and and uh, uh, pretty much all of the businesses have still been trying to practice uh, physical distancing between persons um, and uh, face masks, that type of thing. But... Uh, not so much anymore with regard to face masks, at, at least not here in Missouri. I'm not seeing many people wearing them any longer. Around the 1st of May, uh, Missouri opened up in a limited fashion and has slowly been increasing that to the point where today the state of Missouri pretty much opened the doors for businesses to operate uh, 
normally as they would have prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Boone County, where we are at, um, has been a little bit more restrictive. So uh, the state government has left it up to local and regional authorities to kind of make their own rules. Uh, In Boone County, it's a little bit more restrictive, um, and we'll have to see how long before things uh, get fully opened up, like restaurants being able to operate at full capacity, that type of thing, uh, when that happens here in Boone. I'd be interested to hear what's happening in your areas, whether you're here in Missouri or whether you're in other areas of the country, and what the local constabulary is is putting you all through. (laughs) So... um, I think that it's absolutely uh, an experiment. It's a crazy thing that we're all in the middle of. And what's been going on for the last few weeks with regard to uh, social and cultural unrest, and I'm referring to the many, many thousands and thousands of people that have been protesting, in some cases rioting, in large, large crowds and vast numbers of, of people in many, many American cities, certainly most of the big cities and many, many smaller cities throughout the country. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just something that we were told that was not going to be good, you know, if we assembled in large groups and uh, people yelling and raising their voices and Uh, perhaps running and breathing very hard and in very close proximity to many other people. So I would have to say that that within, gosh, you know, two weeks, 30 days, we should know very clearly whether there's going to be a uh, a resurgence of the COVID-19 virus or if it will have, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, not uh, materialize the way the way we might have thought that it, that it, that it would, uh, you know, a few months back. But certainly the, um, the actions in the cities uh, by large groups of people um, have sort of thrown caution to the wind with regard to, uh, to COVID. I understand that some of those people, you know, are wearing masks, but, uh, you know, the, the, the effectiveness of that is very, very 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 limited in any way and 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 you know the many many of the protesters of course are not wearing any any kind of mask protection like that at all um so anyway it's uh it's a wild one and and we'll have to see what we'll, we'll have to see what happens uh in the next uh in the next uh you know what 21 to 30 days um if if there's a again a large spike in hospitalizations. That's what I'm interested in, you know, hospitalizations and of course deaths. And if those start to go up significantly, well, you know, we may, we may have, have to revisit all this stuff again. So hopefully not. Um, once again, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that. If you've got any interest, you can give me a call at 443-7380-443-8255. Both of those area code five seven three to be a part of the program. All right, a little bit about Geronimo here in a few minutes, and then we'll come back, and I guess we'll play 
little bit of music, and then we'll do some news and see what, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of other things that I think I might try to slip in there too after we talk with, uh, or after we listen to this wonderful documentary uh, about the amazing Apache leader uh, whose name was uh, Goyatle, also went by the name of Geronimo. Before we get there, though, let's say welcome to Radio Orbit. Hi, who's this? Hello? Hi, you there? Oh, must have lost him. Sorry about that. If you'd like to call back, you're welcome to. I thought we had you there, but not sure what happened. Anyway, uh, once again, those phone numbers, 573-443-8255, 573-443-7380. Got a few more minutes. If you want to give me a call, and we'll take a take a break before we do uh, this piece on Geronimo. I've got something really cool from John Cleese, the veteran Monty Python uh, writer and performer and a remarkable actor and comedian, but a really interesting piece from John Cleese that was recorded, uh, recorded in 1987. Let's try this again. Hi, welcome to Radio Orbit. Who's this? Oh, hi, Mike. This is Willie. Hi, Willie. How you doing, man? Uh, oh, pretty good. Uh, it's a real interesting show. I'm le- I'm looking forward to hearing the uh, talk about Geronimo. But uh, I have a couple of comments. Uh, I think that uh, pretty near unanimous is certainly a very large majority of the public health scientists um, state that the wearing the mask is very significant, at least reducing by more than half at the rate of transmission that if somebody has the virus, that the rate, the amount that they will pass that on to other people. Yeah, um, yeah, it definitely knocks it down for uh, sure. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, my other comment is I think, uh, and you're right, it's a big concern that and uh, it kind of shows the, the strength of feeling and the strength of the importance of the issue with the Black Lives Matter and the protests. I think it's been 16 days in a row in Colombia, significant demonstrations. And it's it's really important, too, that it's uh, it's increased the unity of um, all different colors of people in support of the movement. And it, it's going to boost uh, the turnout in the elections, I think. I certainly hope, but I'm very confident that a lot of the organizers of the marches and facilitators, uh, there's been a lot of voter registrations handed out. And, and, and the... Uh, the organizers have handed out masks to most of the demonstrations I've read about. And yeah, I live with fact, my and mother, and I take all the precautions I can. I, I, I almost would feel guilty for not having attended any of these marches and demonstrations. But I'd like to, but I'm just taking the maximum safety I can with me and my mom, who's 90-something, and I'm 60-something. But... Uh, Hey, yeah, Willie, I, I, I'll I, shut up and let you. Well, no, stay, <laughs> stay with me here. Yeah. Um, stay with me here. I want to say that I, that I, I agree, actually, um, with regard to the, to the necessity and the, and, and, and the, uh, the power of the emotions behind the yeah. protest. And I do, I, I, I agree with you that, that it, it is necessary, actually, I think. And, yeah. and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm in support of it. In fact, I was in Columbia, uh, downtown, um, not this last Sunday, but a week ago Sunday, 
and I've lived here for nearly 20 years. And, uh-huh. you know, and there have been many things that have come up over the course of those 20 years that have, that have upset people in, in, you know, for, you know, for many different reasons. But I have never seen anything like I've seen in the last two weeks uh, here in Colombia. And I'm very proud. I yeah. agree with you that the people here in yeah. Colombia certainly have been very, uh, I think, uh, thoughtful about being yeah. uh, we- wearing masks. And I agree with you, that especially if you have both people wearing a mask, if you if you yeah. have, t- you know, if, if, if both if a person has the virus and it'll 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 lower the chance of them to transmit it. And if you're wearing it, it'll, it'll make it even less likely that you're able to, to contract it. Um, yeah. But I will say that in the larger cities, certainly there were many, many people that just were not paying attention to those rules. Oh, yeah. So, so that's you know, why you're going to have the danger of some, some spread and some infection that way. And, yes. uh, but I, I'm not thrown, even given that I'm not thrown, going to throw any stones at people for attending that even that should have perhaps taken more precautions and I'm just to repeat my I, I did praise the organizers for trying to get people to all wear masks and stuff um i i think uh it's significant uh, the, oh well i want to put in a plug for the the show on klpn uh on the covid and all different oh, aspects yeah. it's hosted with we got an md and, yeah. and i think she's a phd uh uh, Dr. Elizabeth, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, yeah. Yes, and and Jenny Chadwick too. And Jenny as well. Uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, and she's a, I, I believe, a PhD at least in, prof- uh, in the public health profession. And uh, also a comment I have. Uh, hey Willie, let's uh, let, let's let let's let people know when that is. That's every every morning except for Friday at nine o'clock on KOPN, yeah. and they call it Community Pulse, and it's not a full hour. It's about a half an hour or so. Um, but it's usually uh, hosted by you know, a number of different people here at KOPN. Yeah. But, uh, but Dr. Alleman is often uh, there uh, and extremely uh, informative and, uh, and yes. really, really, yes. really knows her stuff. And I'm, I'm proud of our station for that show. Uh, uh, it's, it's very interesting, and it's a real public service, and it's well, well like you said, it's well put together. It's well done. Um, I want to comment, too, that... Um, yeah, the demonstrations. Unfortunately, there's going to be some exposures there. But and also, if you walk through downtown, especially the weekends, and I'm not going to throw stones at people for for drinking alcohol and partying. I've done my share of that, <laughs> right. and I love hanging out downtown at the bars and for live music or whatever. I mean, I love Uprise Bakery a lot, and that's where right. I go. But yeah, and uh, um, but. It's scary, and it makes me think it's almost certain the second wave is coming, and maybe worse than the first. Because mm, you see everybody down there, and I won't see. I, I, yeah, nobody's wearing a mask. For my mental health, I have to take walks and get my exit. But and I keep my distance like crazy. Uh, there's I haven't seen anybody yet on like Thursdays through Saturdays wearing a mask yeah. and, and like, and I'm talking too loud now, so I'm guilty of this, <laughs> but they're, they're standing way closer than six feet together, almost all of them, and shouting at each other like we all do when we're after a few drinks, you right, know, and right. some of us idiots like me do all the time just because I'm a conceit, sort of a jerk and conceited, <laughs> but, um, and I would think, I think I'm stupid, so stupid, I think if I talk louder, my point will be more emphatic, which is not as counterproductive, but... Oh, well. um and I don't know what else was it that one. Well, I'll tell you what, we're gonna we're gonna find out, <laughs> Willie. We're gonna find out. It's crazy, but I but I agree with you. I agree. 
But uh, thanks for, I like your show, Mike. It's really interesting. And uh, look, uh, there is something else I wanted to comment about now, but I can't remember. I'll give somebody else a chance to call in if, or if you want to do the Geronimo now. But thanks, Mike. Hey, I appreciate the call, Willie. Take care of yourself, all right? Okay. All, all right. right. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers, man. Bye. All right. Appreciate the call there from Willie. We're going to get to our piece here from Geronimo here in a minute. We'll open the phone lines again when this is done. Uh, I'd like to get this in, though, before the 1 o'clock hour. So we'll get this going, and then we'll come back and do a little bit of news, take some more phone calls from you if you're up for it, and uh, and we'll go from there, okay? All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM on the dial, streaming on the web at www.kopn.org. For me, www.mikehagan.com. And... Uh, yeah, this is a wonderful documentary on the Apache leader and medicine man who went by the name of Goyatle, otherwise known as Geronimo. And you can learn a little bit more about him right now, back in about 42 minutes on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Geronimo the Apache chief, murderous renegade or heroic warrior? The truth about what was next in the real West. Geronimo. His name was synonymous with the Old West and his reputation as a war leader was legendary. To the Mexicans, he was the devil. To Americans, he left no Western road safe for travel. Geronimo gained the distinction of being America's last Indian warrior. Perhaps his confidence to fight was inspired by his mystical ability known to his followers as the power. What gave him his strength and courage to survive and evade capture within his homeland for over half a century was being Apache. Crueler features were never cut. The nose is broad and heavy, the forehead low and wrinkled, the chin full and strong, the eyes like two bits of obsidian with a light behind them. The mouth is the most noticeable feature, a sharp, straight, thin-lipped gash of generous length and without one softening curve. Journalist, 1886. There have been more descriptions given to this one Native American than perhaps any other in the history of the Southwest. Often the facts are muddled in fiction, and separating the man from the myth isn't easy. Geronimo was born in Apache, and he attained the status of being one of the greatest Indian warriors of the West. He is best remembered for his use of guerrilla warfare and his ability in later years to keep a quarter of the American army at bay with a band of just 36. His reputation for wisdom, bravery, and brutality have become a symbol in the American Indian's fight for freedom. Trying to figure out who Geronimo was is not an easy thing to do. It's hard to see him as a full person with all the attributes that uh, human beings have. And, um, most of them have been set aside and uh, emphasis has been placed on uh, the warrior, the savage, uh, the killer, the, the defender of his uh, way of life. Geronimo is best noted for four decades of waging war and winning against even the most aggressive enemy. And according to the Apaches, his secret to successfully guiding them was due to a special gift. He was uh, a man that possessed and exercised tremendous power in a sacred sense and uh, was well known among his people uh, for the uh, 
extent of his power. This is power with a big P. Uh, acute powers of extrasensory perception and uh, powers of prophecy. He was thought to have the power to stop time, to stop clouds in the sky, uh, to uh, control the environment and the, his surroundings. There was an awful lot of respect for his abilities as a medicine man. He, his word was listened to and his advice frequently followed. Geronimo's faith in this force was absolute, figuring prominently into his life as both a seer and a soldier. He claimed the power spoke to him, giving him the assurances that would arm him with the faith to fight. Then it spoke. No gun can ever kill you. I will take the bullets from the gun so they will have nothing but powder, and I will guide your arrows. Geronimo. Geronimo lived during a time when the West was still wild, when the land was yours until taken away. He was born a Badakahe Apache, but eventually joined the Chiricahuas. The Apaches were not one tribe, but several groups separated into what they called bands. They were peaceful people who lived throughout Arizona, New Mexico, and Mexico. They were free to roam this rugged area they called home. They were extremely fit. They had to be to live in the desert and mountain terrain. They were nomadic in that they followed the seasons and they followed the hunt for their food. And by and large, they lived um, a very simple life. They did not consider themselves to be impoverished. They considered themselves to be wealthy, rich in terms of their health, their relations with their families, and especially with their children. The Apaches had land that others desired, and this left them with a constant struggle for survival. It was the terrain that made them tough, but it was their training that saved their lives. From a very early age, the Apache children had to learn how to survive. They needed to know their area, where to find water and where to find food. They needed to be able to travel long distances. Uh, some of the Apaches could travel well over 100 miles a day for several days at a time. They were trained to be able to escape from their enemies who would on occasion try to capture them or, or kill them. And the children had to know what to do. The Apaches were a peaceful people that had been faced with fighting for years. Their love of the environment was firmly rooted in their homeland and caused them to wage war against anyone that tried to take that away. That was our land. Even though it was rugged, it might be a mountainside or a cave in the mountain, but that was home. That's where we lived. And that was ours. And then somebody come and disrupt our home. Well, that would put fire in anybody. Geronimo and the Apaches were united against the enemy. Their land was more than home, it was holy. They thought their god, Yusin, had given them this gift, and protecting it meant protecting the life ways of their culture. Thus it was in the beginning, the Apaches and their homes, each created for the other by Yusin himself. When they are taken from these homes, they sicken and die. How long will it be until it is said there are no Apaches? Geronimo. For Geronimo and the Apaches, fighting to remain in their region had become a way of life. 
They engaged in combat with first the Spanish and then the Mexicans. But it was a battle over family, not freedom, that raised Geronimo from warrior to war leader. About 1850, Mexican uh, soldiers fell on the camp of uh, Chiricahuas and uh, killed Geronimo's mother and his wife and I think two children. And so this planted in uh, Geronimo a determination to exact revenge that lasted him the entire rest of his life. For Geronimo, revenge came in the form of bloody raids on the Mexicans. And when the white settlers came west, Geronimo and the Apaches added another enemy to the list. When the white settlers first came in, it interrupted the the Chiricahua way of life. It interrupted their migrations with the seasons. It interrupted their hunting because, of course, the settlers wanted the same food. They were all after the same food. And while the food was not scarce, the settlers were protected by the army who established forts out here. And because the Chiricahuas wanted the same things and wanted to protect their land, the army decided that they were the enemies. And the army then tried to subdue the Chiricahuas. By the 1860s, the Apaches were forced to live on reservations. Geronimo moved with a neighboring band of Chiricahuas to the Apache Pass Agency. This was still part of their territory, but time would change that too. In 1876, the government began to put into uh, operation their plan to concentrate all Apaches at San Carlos. And so the Chiricahuas from that Apache Pass reservation were all uprooted and taken to San Carlos. And that's when uh, Geronimo decided he did not want to go there. Geronimo's uh, hatred for the place really is based on the fact that it wasn't his land. It wasn't his traditional homeland. It was an outrageous proceeding, one for which I should still blush had I not long since gotten over blushing for anything the United States government did in Indian matters. Lieutenant John Bork, United States Army. To discuss the move, Geronimo called for a conference with John Clum, the agent of the San Carlos Reservation. Geronimo agreed to go to San Carlos, but first he went to gather the rest of his band. He assembled hundreds of men, women, and children, and then fled. I do not think that I ever belonged to those soldiers at Apache Pass, or that I should have asked where I might go. Geronimo. It was at that point Geronimo and John Clum became enemies. This would be the first of many breakaways for the war leader. He and the band would gain notoriety for choosing life on the run instead of the reservation. They resumed their raids on the settlements and soon the Apaches were making headlines. But one man in particular was continually cited as the leader for the violence and devastation that terrorized the West. There would be an attack someplace, and they'd say Geronimo did it. And, and then the same afternoon, several hundred miles away, there'd be another attack, and Geronimo would be blamed for that, too. Every time any little band of Apaches, whether they were Chiricahuas or some other band, would attack uh, 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 a stagecoach or a stage station or a ranch, they always said Geronimo did it. Uh, he probably didn't do more than a tenth of the uh, attacks that he's charged with. Geronimo was branded a renegade, and John Clum was patiently waiting to have another try at taming the legendary leader. 
It would take time, but the two would meet again, fueling the fires of discontent between the warrior and the white man. During the years of the Apache fight for freedom, the name Geronimo struck terror in the hearts of pioneers across the Western Front. The capture of the wild warrior became a top priority, but a successful strategy to control Geronimo would happen only once. The trouble began while Geronimo was living at the Warm Springs Reservation at Ojo Caliente. Its close proximity to Mexico provided a safe passageway for continued raids. The warriors would strike out across international borders, steal livestock, and then herd them back to the agency. The people of the West worried. No one was sure when the Indians would attack. The Apaches, however, knew nothing of the cultural clash they were causing. They would give these gifts to the people on the reservation, and the people on the reservation would exchange gifts of blankets or knives. Some of these things were things that had been, been issued to the Indians on the reservation. And the Apaches didn't think they were doing anything particularly wrong to exchange these gifts with their relatives. It was a confusing situation for all the Indians, including Geronimo. Raiding was part of the Apache social structure, so they expected to steal and still be able to draw rations on the reservation. Geronimo went so far as to have an angry exchange when he was denied the rations missed during his absence. An army officer witnessed the encounter and informed authorities. Immediate action needed to be taken, so Geronimo's nemesis, John Clum, was contacted. His mission, to bring in the renegades and hold them in confinement for robbery and murder. By the time that John Clum got the message, the sighting had been 24 days old. John Clum turned to his um, companion at San Carlos and said, you and I know that any Apache trail that's even 24 hours old is useless. But he went anyway, as he was ordered to do. And it has happened that Geronimo had maintained his camp. And John Clum sent a messenger to Geronimo's people and said, come in, I'd like to talk to you. Geronimo and the renegades were unaware of the problems. So they took their women and children and rode to what they thought was a conference, not a confrontation. Clum sat on a porch with a few men, but his real force was hidden inside the buildings of the agency. 80 Indian policemen patiently waited as the discussion began to unfold. Clum accused the renegades of stealing, killing, and breaking promises of peace. He had come to take them in. Geronimo was furious. We are not going to San Carlos with you. And unless you are very careful, you and your Apache police will not go back to San Carlos either. Your bodies will stay here at Ojo Caliente to make food for the coyotes. And at that point, uh, John Clum said, uh, uh, you need to surrender right now, give me your gun. And watched Geronimo put his hand back and start to cock the gun with his thumb. And at that point, um, John Clum tipped his sombrero. And that was the signal for these 80 Apache police to pour out of the buildings at a double quick pace and uh, surround the 100 Apaches and point their guns at them. I have seen many looks of hate in my long life, but never one so vicious, so vengeful. Geronimo's mouth had a natural droop on the right-hand side, so that even in repose he seemed to sneer. But when I took his rifle from him, his lip tightened and the sneer was accentuated. The scar on his face completed the picture that has remained very clearly in my memory for 55 years. John Clum, 1932. 
they succeeded in seizing Geronimo, shackling and ironing him, and taking him to uh, San Carlos. The idea was they would turn Geronimo over to the civil authorities in Tucson where he could be tried for murder. This was always a prescription for confusion and, and uh, even disaster to try to try Indians in the white man's court. Geronimo was never tried in the white man's court, but the impact of this one incident would have a tremendous effect on the war leader he would always remain aware of the white man's hatred toward him. In 1877, Geronimo was forced to obey the white man's laws. He and the other Apaches were forced to San Carlos, or what was known as Hell's 40 Acres. The creator did not make San Carlos. He just left it as he found it. He did not do any work around there at all. Take stones and ashes and thorns with some scorpions and rattlesnakes thrown in, set the United States Army after the Apaches, and you have San Carlos. Owen Wister, photographer. San Carlos was a terrible place. It was uh, in the Gila River bottoms. It was malarial. The soil was unproductive. The weather was beastly, uh, summer and winter alike. And it was simply a place that nobody liked to live. Geronimo and his people hated San Carlos. Um, you have to realize that he was forced to live among all kinds of Apaches, and some even non-Apaches. And uh, they did not want to live with these people. Uh, they did not see themselves as Apaches. They saw themselves as members of a band. Uh, plus, Indian agent John Clum wanted them to change their ways. He wanted them to uh, grow crops and do it in a prescribed manner. He really wanted them to become Americanized. That was a big mistake. Geronimo was finally freed of shackles and John Clum had quit. But still, the combination of cultural differences and alien environment caused the warrior to want more freedom. San Carlos was not home. It was merely an area filled with unhappy captives and corruption. When Geronimo had enough, he simply uh, pulled up stakes and, and left. These came to be known as bust-outs. When conditions on the reservation and when the white man's rules got uh, intolerable, you simply bust out and head south. His own people were divided about which course to take. Uh, most of them did not support Geronimo continuing the fight for freedom in their, their life way. Uh, they felt that in the end they would lose more than they might gain by fighting. So most of them stayed on a reservation instead of joining him. For four years, Geronimo would repeat the pattern of busting out and then returning to San Carlos. In September of 1881, Geronimo made another break, but he returned once more, this time to free those Apaches imprisoned by the white man's ways. The Indians he considered his people were under the leadership of Loco from the neighboring Membrano Apaches. Geronimo simply swooped down on the reservation with a raiding party one day and forced Loco and his people to go with him back to Mexico. They were running by night, darkness helping to hide their whereabouts. As daybreak neared, the legend has it that Geronimo helped his people escape by using his power. He sang a song that stopped the sunrise until the band had melted into the safety of the mountains. The Apaches were keeping an eye on their back trail because American soldiers were following them and uh, not paying attention to uh, their front when the Mexicans fell on them and really uh, worked a big slaughter on uh, 
these people. Despite the devastation, Geronimo had been successful in assembling the largest number of Apaches in many years. They were living in the safety of the Sierra Madre, but their sanctuary would soon become unstable. The situation for Geronimo and his band spiraled out of control when the United States Army employed not just Indians, but Apaches to aid in the capture of Geronimo's elusive group. This strategic move would mark the beginning of the end of the great war leader's fight for freedom. Geronimo and the Apaches were still secure in the Sierra Madre. After many years, life resembled that of a freer time. They helped guard their safety spiritually. Blessings were held by the light of bonfire and the crowned dancers rhythmically warded off evil. Many had died to get them here, but at last they were home. They were again living off the land and raiding to collect all other provisions for survival. As long as the Apaches roamed free, the people across two borders lived in fear. But in 1882, Geronimo and the Apaches found their safety at stake when one man, General George Crook, was assigned to San Carlos to restore order to both the Southwest and Mexico. General Crook had demonstrated a real skill at guerrilla warfare, at um, employing the Indians' methods against the Indians. And uh, so everyone uh, in the government thought that if anybody could handle this highly unstable situation in Arizona, it was General Crook. With Crook in command, it meant unconventional warfare. His strategy was a departure from the Army's traditional techniques, and his methods were based on the mindset of the Indian warrior, not the white man. One of his hallmarks was to achieve great mobility, just as much mobility as the Indians had by cutting himself free from wagon trains. And he uh, developed uh, uh, mule packing to a high art. All of his supplies were carried on mules, and so he could go anywhere the Indians could go. The other hallmark of his operation was uh, the use of Indians against Indians. What better way to uh, grapple with Indians than by their own techniques, even better yet, by their own people. With Geronimo on the run, the conditions at San Carlos were in a constant state of turmoil. So many Apaches enlisted as military scouts, anxious to end the uneasiness. We were scouts in order to help the whites against the Chiricahuas because they had killed a lot of people. Apache scout. For the first time, it was Apache against Apache, and soon there was no refuge for the renegades. They managed to locate the base camps of the Apaches in the Sierra Madre. And this came as uh, a great shock to Geronimo and all of the other leaders who were there, that their own people were now being used against them and that the troops could actually find them in those refuges high in the Sierra Madre. Geronimo knew the end of their freedom was imminent. The power had spoken to him again, giving him the ability to predict the Apache army invasion two days before it happened. Tomorrow afternoon, as we march along the mountains, we will see a man standing on a hill. He will howl to us and tell us that the troops have captured our base camp. Geronimo, May 1883. Geronimo had had enemies, but never such a formidable force as that under the command of Crook. The Sierra Madre no longer offered a hiding place. So all the outlaws were forced to surrender, including Geronimo. Once again, it was back to San Carlos, but not for long.
I learned from American and Apache soldiers that the Americans were going to arrest me and hang me. And so I left. Geronimo. It was May of 1885 when Geronimo fled, fearing for his life with 143 Apaches. This would be his final break from San Carlos. Crook was sent back on the hunt for hostiles, and once again, the Apache scouts led the search by scouring the mountains. For Geronimo and the Apaches, it was back to a life on the run. But after eight months, it was obvious that nothing could stop the Apache scouts from closing in. Another meeting with Crook was inevitable, so an agreement was made. On March 25, 1886, a conference would be held under the sycamore and cottonwood trees of Canyon de los Ambudas. In March, he said that he would come in and discuss with General Crook a surrender, and then set the conditions. Geronimo said when it would happen, where it would happen, and who he would allow to be at those negotiations. And he specifically said no United States soldiers. The Apaches were still leery of the white man, so they had strategically positioned themselves for attack. It was said that as many as a thousand military men could not have captured the 143 armed Apaches. It would have been simply an impossibility to get white troops to that point, either by day or by night, without their knowledge. So suspicious were they that never more than five to eight of their men came into our camp at one time. And to have attempted the arrest of those would have stampeded the others to the mountains. Brigadier General George Crook, 1886. On the first day of uh, surrender uh, discussions, Geronimo was one of those who spoke, and he spoke at length. And General Crook asked him, why have you left the reservation? Why have you gone out raiding again? Why are you here? And Geronimo said, I had to leave. They were going to kill me. There were soldiers that would come in and uh, tease him and put their finger across his neck as if he was going to be killed, and uh, he feared for his life. Geronimo's fear figured prominently into surrender discussions, but Crook stood his ground. A move to San Carlos was no longer an option. He insisted that they needed to be punished. The fight for freedom had gone too far. Crook said, you can stay out if you want. I don't care, and if you do, I will keep after you until the last man is killed, even if it takes 50 years. Or you can surrender, you can uh, go back east uh, for two years, and then come back and live on the reservation. Take your choice, I don't care which one. And Geronimo um, considered this long and hard and decided that uh, he would accept Crook's terms. I give myself up to you. Do with me what you please. I surrender. Once I moved about like the wind, now I surrender to you, and that is all. Geronimo. In some very powerful words, the war leader had given up his freedom, or so it seemed. The 143 Apaches were to surrender in the morning, but in March of 1886, only 107 would turn themselves in, among the missing Geronimo. Unfortunately, a whiskey peddler got to Geronimo and so en route, Geronimo and the rest of them all got drunk and uh, stampeded back to the mountains. He later explained, uh, I decided that uh, I wouldn't trust the Americans, that uh, 
life in Mexico was safer. The fact is that uh, he just couldn't bring himself to submit to that kind of uh, a loss of freedom. Geronimo and a band of Chiricahuas were back on the run. General Crook was devastated and the government was furious. General Crook asked to be relieved of command and the government began to readdress the situation. They decided to launch a campaign, one of the largest in military history, to capture the hostiles. In the spring of 1886, General Crook had been relieved of command. Immediate action was taken to replace him. It was left to General Nelson Miles to rescue the Southwest from the smoldering situation. The methods of Miles were different from Crook's. He decided to disband the group of Apache scouts that had been so successful in tracking the hostiles in the past. He set up a new system complete with mirrored stations for communications throughout the area. Then he filled the field with soldiers, a staggering 5,000 men or what was a quarter of the United States Army, was sent in search of the Geronimo Band. It was a massive campaign, but still not enough to capture the elusive group of just 36 members. Ever since they'd been born, they had been placed in a situation where they had to fight, where they had to hide, where they had to be able to move long distances without leaving any trails, to be able to go places without being seen, to be able to find water where there was no water to be found to be able to, to survive on whatever was available. And out of all the Apache people, this group here was a group who had all those skills necessary to accomplish those things. After months of failed attempts to capture the Chiricahuas, Miles was forced to rethink his approach. General Miles thought at first that the right sort of white men could do the job. And he too found out that that wouldn't work. And in fact, virtually every white soldier that campaigned in Mexico under General Miles became worn out and had to return before uh, completing the campaign. And so General Miles turned uh, somewhat surreptitiously uh, to the tried and proven crook methods. He began more and more to use uh, Indian scouts. He kept the regulars out there uh, visible, and they were the ones who were getting the credit, but the Indian scouts were back into the picture. Two Apache scouts were enlisted to take a message to the hostiles. A lieutenant by the name of Charles Gatewood was placed in charge, and the future of Indian warfare rode into the mountains with just three men. When the scouts were finally successful in locating Geronimo's camp, they secured a conference. On August 26, 1886, Geronimo and Lieutenant Gatewood finally met face to face. By squads, the hostiles came in, unsaddled, and turned out their ponies to graze. Among the last to arrive was Geronimo, Lieutenant Charles Gatewood, United States Army. When Gatewood met with Geronimo, he had one high card that came as a uh, shocker to Geronimo. Geronimo was prepared to surrender if he could go back to the reservation. And Gatewood told him then, you can't go back to the reservation. None of your people are there. They have all been moved back east to Fort Marion. It, uh, was a harsh thing to do, it was uh, in many ways a cruel thing to do, but there's no denying that it was an effective thing to do. 
Geronimo was willing to surrender his freedom for his family. But again, he would only give himself up to the commander in charge. So General Miles, like General Crook, was forced to take his military reputation into the field to end the fighting. On September 4th, General Miles would finally meet Geronimo. One of the brightest, most resolute, determined-looking men that I have ever encountered. He had the sharpest dark eye I think I have ever seen. Every movement indicated power and determination. In everything he did, he had a purpose. General Nelson Miles. In September of 1886 at uh, Skeleton Canyon, Miles was in a mood to tell Geronimo anything he wanted to hear. And he really did deceive Geronimo about the terms of surrender. On September 4th, 1886, Geronimo abandoned his life as a renegade. The terms of surrender were set, or so he thought. He had given up his fight to spend two years in Florida, where he would be reunited with his family and friends. This agreement marked a new beginning for Geronimo. He was now officially a prisoner of war. We placed a large stone on the blanket before us. Our treaty was made by this stone and it was to last until the stone should crumble into dust. I do not believe I ever violated that treaty, but General Miles never fulfilled his promises. Geronimo, 1906. The fight for freedom had ended, leaving a trail of broken promises behind. The Apaches would begin not a two-year sentence, but one that would last almost three decades, and Geronimo would never see his homeland again. Geronimo and his people were transported down to the railroad and loaded onto trains to be taken back to Fort Marion. And in a supreme historical irony, the 4th Cavalry Band played Old Lang Syne. Old Lang Syne rang down the curtain on four centuries of Indian warfare. In 1886, the Chiricahuas were punished for the wrongdoings of just a few. So altogether, there were more than 500 that were shipped off as prisoners of war. These were mostly women and children. Most of them never fought against the United States, had followed all the instructions that the United States had given them. Even the scouts that had been used by the United States were shipped off as prisoners of war. There is no more disgraceful page in history than that which concerns the treachery visited upon the Chiricahuas who remained faithful in their allegiance to our people. Lieutenant John Bork. It was now completely clear that the terms agreed to while surrendering would not be honored by the white men. Geronimo would not see his family for almost two years. He and 17 warriors were imprisoned at Fort Pickens while the rest of the Chiricahuas were sent to Fort Marion and St. Augustine. Once in Florida, it was a combination of heartbreak and humidity that began to devastate the entire Apache culture. The um, situation as it existed in Florida for the Apaches was one of um, totally an alien environment in terms of the terrain, the uh, temperature, humidity, the uh, structures, everything was, the, the weather, it was all very alien to them. They fell ill immediately with the white man's diseases, mainly malaria and tuberculosis, so that in the first seven or eight months, 
18 to 24 people died instantly. Where they took him is only a place for a person to suffer. There's nothing there, nothing there for them to live on. It's a place where a person is sent to, to die. Their Apache ability to adapt had failed them in Florida. And now the people turned their anger toward the one man they thought had caused all the trouble. A lot of our tribal members were very justifiably of the opinion that Geronimo was a large part of the reason that our tribe was imprisoned. And a lot of people died as a result of some of the things that Geronimo did. Within a year and a half, more than 20 Chiricahuas had died. The numbers were alarming, and the only solution was to move the Apaches to another location. The Apaches were sent to Alabama. There was hope that they would adapt better to the new location, but only time would tell. After the people were relocated from St. Augustine to Mount Vernon, Geronimo and the other warriors were permitted to, to join the rest of their families. And Geronimo becomes just one of the crowd. He doesn't stand out as a healer or a leader or um, as a special individual. But I'm sure uh, that was just so they could go on living. This is a very tough time for the Apaches. They still did not fare well in Alabama. They continued to get sick. There was nothing for them to do. They just did not adapt well. Babies uh, were dying from septicemia, which was the result of all the mosquito bites and different bug bites that these babies had gotten. By 1894, there were under 300 Apaches alive out of the 517 imprisoned just eight years before. They were dying at an alarming rate, and once again, this disturbing and deadly situation had to be remedied. They were moved once more, this time to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. When the Apaches disembarked from the train and heard the coyote for the first time since leaving the Southwest, they felt like they were back home. It was a, a peaceful, settling feeling. Geronimo was getting up in years by this time, and we see some animosity beginning to develop. He began to get caught up in his own legend to a certain extent. Some of the other Apaches didn't like that too much. Geronimo was losing ground among his people, but the white man still admired the bravery of this fearsome warrior and was willing to pay for a piece of anything he owned. He became known as quite an entrepreneur because he would sell the buttons off of his coat. He kept a pocket full of buttons that he kept replenishing them with and selling them just as fast as he could. Geronimo began to whittle bows and arrows for sale to the tourists and he learned how to write his name so he would sign autographs and charge the tourists 25 cents for an autograph. Some of the other neighboring tribes, such as the Kiowa and Comanches, would frequently bring their beadwork to him to sell because they felt he could sell it easier than they could. He was well known, people sought him out, and anything made, used, handled by Geronimo was marketable. I often made as much as $2 a day. I had plenty of money, more than I had ever owned before. Geronimo, 1906. This living legend was in demand. 
So he began to make numerous public appearances. He had terrified the West, and now he was awing audiences around the nation with his presence. He was seen everywhere, but his most notable journey took him to Washington to ride in the inaugural parade for Theodore Roosevelt. Geronimo was supposed to symbolize a part of the country's past. He was one of six so-called wild Indians that led the procession. The administration was making a point. They could do anything, and that included taming the Indians. It was probably propaganda at its worst. But Geronimo saw it as an opportunity to meet the president and present him with a final plea for freedom. White men are in the country that was my home. I pray you tell them to go away and let my people go there and be happy. Great Father, my hands are tied as with rope. I will tell my people to obey no chief but the great white chief. I pray you to cut the ropes and make me free. Let me die in my own country, an old man who has been punished enough and is free. Geronimo, 1905. The request was denied. Geronimo was sent back to Fort Sill, but his hopes for freedom to roam his homeland just one more time remained. It is my land, my home, my father's land, to which I now ask to be allowed to return. I want to spend my last days there and be buried among those mountains. If this could be, I might die in peace. Geronimo. Geronimo never gave up the dream of once again seeing the Southwest. More than two decades after his surrender, he was still a prisoner of war. However, he had a certain degree of freedom. By the time he was in his 80s, he was allowed to leave the grounds alone and ride into town to sell his goods. It was on one of these trips where Geronimo encountered his final fight. Coming back late at night from, from the town of Lawton, feeling a little too much whiskey, fell off his horse and uh, lay in a, a gully all night long in a puddle of water. Uh, he was found the next day, brought into the post to the Apache Hospital that was here on the post and treated for pneumonia that he developed. On February 17, 1909, the great war leader had surrendered for the last time. His struggle to survive had ended and his spirit was free at last. The fearsome warrior had fought his final battle, leaving only a legend to live on. In the end, the myth outgrew the man. He became a symbol of hope and despair in the Indian struggle to survive. Geronimo was much more than just a medicine man, warrior, or war leader. He was an Apache. All right, there you go. A uh, interesting piece on the Apache leader, medicine man, and controversial figure, Geronimo Coyotle. Hey, ho. You know, as I was listening to that, I was thinking about how many different versions of history there really are, how, how many different accounts of, of, of different uh, events or periods of history, uh, even individual histories like biographies. Uh, the story of Geronimo, for example, there are more than one. And in fact, uh, during the course of that, I was uh, chatting with some people who were listening as well online and uh, mentioning that it was primarily white folks that were doing the discussion 
about uh, about Geronimo in that particular piece. And it's true. Uh, I mean, there there are some there are a few uh, uh, native um, people that were featured as well, but for the most part. Uh, white academic uh, or Caucasian academics and, and uh, scholars, etc. And yeah, there is a particular version of, of, of stories that you will get depending on who's telling the story. Um, I have an interesting uh, thought about history that my grandfather Wallace uh, taught me many years ago, and uh, Wallace was a Lakota medicine man uh, who died back in 2004, but I was fortunate enough to spend some time with him back in my Colorado days. But uh, one time, Grandfather Wallace said to me, hey, Mike, do you, do you know what the difference between uh, history and the past is? I said, ah, no, I guess not, you know. And he said, history can be changed. <laughs> and I, at the time, kind of thought, what? And after thinking about it a little bit, I realized exactly what he was saying, that history is not the past. The past is what really took place, what actually occurred. And history are the different versions of those actual events. History is a story about the past. The past is the truth. And if you can write a historical story or a historical account that is accurate uh, to the past, then it will be the truth. Um, that's very rare, I think. Um, we have many, many different perspectives on many, many different levels uh, about many, many different occurrences. So anyway, I know this much that the way that the American government, military powers that be, whatever, uh, during the course of the 1800s and into the 1900s and to this day is despicable and shameful and it breaks my heart. It does, and I've talked about this on the air before, um, because I'm very close to the, you know, certain groups of uh, of na native people out west, Lakota, primarily. And if you've ever been to South Dakota, and been to the reservation, and this is just one, you know, I'm talking about. I, I I've spent time up there in Pine Ridge, uh, but. You know, it doesn't matter if you go to Oklahoma or if you go to Arizona or Minnesota or the Dakotas or even up in the, the Pacific Northeast. The conditions in which these people are living is is shameful. We should be ashamed as a as a, as a nation. Um, and they were here, you know, before any of us before any of our ancestors got here. And, uh, and all those cultures have been, have been just destroyed. And they, they hold on at the, just, just barely, you know. And they get very little visibility. And, you know, I appreciate the people that, that think about them too. So, 
All right. Um, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. Streaming on the web at kopn.org. And uh, information about me on the web at www.mikehagan.com. Let's play one from our featured musicians of the evening. This one, uh, I guess in honor of Geronimo, this one's called Savage Beauty. The band is called Trills. I like them. I hope you do too. It's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Back in just a few minutes.
All right, there you go. Another one from Trills. That one's called Savage Beauty. You listen to it here. It's Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And my name is Mike Hagan. Glad to be with you here tonight. It's about two minutes before 1 o'clock in the morning. Now on the 16th of June, 2020, halfway through the year almost. Crazy. What a crazy year it's been. And, uh, I mean, with no, with no indication that it's going to get less crazy as we move forward the rest of this year, I mean, I, I, I shudder to think about uh, what it might bring, to be honest. We just have to kind of ride it out here and, and, uh, and hold on to the rails. All right, uh, this program is brought to you by listener support and a donation from Quantum Wireless Services. Serving Mid-Missouri since 2012, Quantum Wireless Internet provides internet, television, and phone services to residential and business customers. More information is available at quantumwirelessinternet.com or by calling 573-256-1166. Quantum Wireless Internet, your connection to the digital world. All right, and if you want to get connected to my digital world, go to the web and get on www.mikehagan.com and check out the forum over there and you can join me and get involved in the program when we're not on the air. That's sort of the 24-7 place to see what's happening for all things Orbit. Okay. All right. um, Yeah, top of the hour here, I guess. So I will mention the phone numbers again. I'm going to play a piece from Mr. John Cleese. Uh, from 1987 that I thought was sort of profound and timely, uh, even though it's 30 years old, it's appropriate today. So I'm going to play that for you. But, um, well, I guess that's all. I think I will do that. Uh, For those who are not familiar, John Cleese is and was a very successful uh, British actor, comedian, uh, screenwriter, uh, responsible for much of the hilarity that came from the Monty Python uh, troupe and uh, did a bunch of other stuff as well. He's still quite active and a uh, very thoughtful and interesting guy. And we're going to hear a little bit of what he has to say about extremism. And remember, this is uh, 1987, so about 33 years ago uh, from today. All right, back in just about five minutes, and I'll chat with you then. In fact, I'll give those phone numbers out. If anybody wants to call after this John Cleese piece, um, feel free. The numbers are 573-443-7380, 573-443-8255. All right, check this out. Extremism is its advantages. Well, the biggest advantage of extremism is that it makes you feel good because it provides you with enemies. Let me explain. The great thing about having enemies is that you can pretend that all the badness in the whole world is in your enemies and all the goodness in the whole world is in you. Attractive, isn't it? So, if you have a lot of anger and resentment in you anyway, and you therefore enjoy abusing people, then you can pretend that you're only doing it because these enemies of yours are such very bad persons and that if it wasn't for them, you'd actually be good-natured and courteous and rational all the time. So, if you want to feel good, become an extremist. Okay, 
Now you have a choice. If you join the hard left, they'll give you their list of authorized enemies. Almost all kinds of authority, especially the police, the city, Americans, judges, multinational corporations, public schools, furriers, newspaper owners, fox hunters, generals, class traitors, and, of course, moderates. Or, if you'd rather be an extremist on the hard right, no problem, fine, you still get a lovely list of enemies, only they're different ones. Noisy minority groups, unions, Russia, weirdos, demonstrators, welfare sponges, meddlesome clergy, peaceniks, the BBC, strikers, social workers, communists, and, of course, moderates. And upstart actors. Now, once you're armed with one of these super lists of enemies, you can be as nasty as you like and yet feel your behaviors morally justified. So you can strut around uh, abusing people and telling them you could eat them for breakfast and still think of yourself as a champion of the truth, a, a fighter for the greater good, and not the rather sad paranoid schizoid that you really are. And all this explains what we've seen at party conferences. Everyone's sitting there looking grim and bored, and then a speaker gets up with real fire in his belly, as well as dyspepsia, and he says, the other party really are the most awful bunch of rotters, the most left-wing or right-wing bunch there's ever been in this great country of ours, and it would be a disaster if they ever got into power, or held on to power, that's all we must get into power, or hold on to power, but that's going to be a tremendous fight, a terrific struggle, and we can't relax and enjoy ourselves, no, we must struggle and fight and fight, and struggle and struggle and struggle, and fight and fight against these enemies, and then struggle a little bit more at the end of that. And then the speaker goes and sits down, and there's a lovely warm glow throughout the hall, as if they'd all had tea and crumpets. And everyone looks relaxed and happy and simply radiant with goodwill. Although, if the speaker had said, we must all have lots of fun and be nice to each other and cooperate in solving problems, they'd probably have lynched him or deselected him or taken all his directorships away because attacking our enemies always makes us feel good and excited in fact just about the only disadvantage to extremism is that it can never solve problems but then solving problems is a real bore compared with healing victory and swearing to smash capitalism and crush socialism and generally feeling good i mean solving problems involves frustrating things like listening to people with different views and learning from them which of course breaks the first rule of british politics no other party's ideas are any good then the other irritating thing about solving problems is if the solutions are going to work they've got to be fair well, ask any businessman, he'll tell you a good deal is one both sides can accept. If not, it won't work. But this means that you've got to be fair and balanced, and that breaks the second rule of British politics. Parties represent special interest groups. How can Labour reform the unions when the unions give them 90% of their income? Of course the Tories will reform the unions, but they'll allow self-regulation for the City of London, which gives them a lot of their money. It's a giggle, isn't it? And these two rules are exactly why so many of our problems are not being solved. Because the old British system has been the seesaw. First Labour, then the Tories. No continuity of planning from nationalisation to denationalisation to renationalisation to privatisation. 
and the rest of the time producing those farmyard noises we all know and love from Prime Minister's Question Time. <laughs> all right, there you go. Wise words from Mr. John Cleese from 33 years ago today. All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. And I'm going to give you all a few more minutes to give me a call here if you want to chat. Otherwise, I'm going to throw on some music and uh, tell you to enjoy the rest of your evening. We've got Eric P's Sound Legacy coming at you here at 2 o'clock, about 50 minutes or so from now. Eric will be bringing you some fantastic music until about 5.30 in the morning. And at that time, the wonderful early morning classical music show Morning Air, which airs every Monday through Friday on KOPN at 5.30 in the morning until 8 o'clock where we follow that up with Democracy Now! and a number of different programs uh, including um, at 9 o'clock Community Pulse which uh, uh, Willie who called a little bit ago uh, mentioned uh, during our conversation. Alright, 573-443-7380 573-443-8255 if you'd like to say hi. Uh, in the meantime, let's take a little bit of a look at the news here. I did mention that the Radio Orbit podcast is now operational. Just go to the website and click on that subscribe button or anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, typically at least, most of the major platforms. Just put in Radio Orbit and maybe Mike Hagan, but I think Radio Orbit will get you there. And you can subscribe to the podcast, okay? All right, what do we have here? I'll just kind of start on the list. And these are examples of stories that uh, can be found on the Radio Orbit forum. And there are many, many stories that are posted there over the, over the months and years. And I've got them archived right now just in a latest to oldest sort. And uh, the top one on the list here is the podcast underneath that is uh, a story from where did this one come from is this from the Jerusalem Post well uh, genetically modified mosquitoes cleared for release in the US who, who makes these decisions uh, are we in the middle of a, of a pandemic all right uh, a company called Oxitec has received an experimental use permit from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to release genetically modified mosquitoes into the wild. This would be the first time that such an experiment was attempted within the borders of the U.S. What, what, what do borders have to do with it? They're mosquitoes. They'll go, they don't pay attention to borders. The same as viruses. Um, and the permit would allow for the release of millions of genetically modified mosquitoes each week over the next two years. The genetic... Uh, the genetically modified insects will be released in Florida and Texas, but they will easily be able to travel throughout the country from there. Day. The mosquitoes are likely only being deployed in Texas and Florida for now because the company needs approval from each individual state in addition to federal EPA approval. A previously planned release in the Florida Keys of an earlier version of Oxitec's genetically modified mosquito was canceled in 2016 after pushback from local residents about the potential dangers. I guess they don't care anymore. Now there are other things to worry about now in 2020. However, other regions have welcomed Oxitec with open arms, including Brazil, the Cayman Islands, Malaysia, and Panama. 
For the recent public forum regarding Oxitec's recent permit application in the U.S., there were 31,174 comments opposing the release of the mosquitoes and only 56 in support. So um, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, opposition to this. While the EPA promised to consider these votes during the review process, the permit still went through anyway. Scientists hope that these genetically modified mosquitoes can help eliminate diseases that are typically carried by mosquitoes, such as dengue, chikungunya, and yellow fever, and Zika virus. The plan is that these genetically modified male mosquitoes will mate with wild females and their genetics will cause the children to die and should cause a collapse of the wild population. Oh, these people are insane. However, there is a growing concern among scientists that this technology may not be ready for deployment and that the risks have not been studied thoroughly enough. Many scientists are warning that the potential unintended consequences that can come from unleashing such insects into the wild. For example, researchers are entirely unaware of what type of allergic reactions that these insects could cause if they interact with people. To help with some of these concerns, uh, yeah, I can't even go on, but you, you get the idea. All right? Genetically modified mosquitoes have been cleared for release in the United States. That's great news. Okay. Fermi bubbles measured in visible light for the first time. There are two objects in the center of our galaxy uh, that are mysterious and enigmatic, and they have been named Fermi bubbles. And uh, the discovery was made not that long ago. Uh, I think it was maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Let me go, let, let me go to the article here. Uh, this is from uh, the Watchers uh, Space Exploration category. Fermi bubbles measured in visible light for the first time. For the first time, astronomers have observed visible light from two gigantic outflows of high-energy gas in our galaxy known as Fermi bubbles. The researchers announced their findings at the 236th meeting of the American Astronomical Society, which was held virtually for the first time since 1899. Scientists measured the emission of light by hydrogen and nitrogen gases in the Fermi bubbles in the same area as a recent ultraviolet absorption calculation made by the Hubble Space Telescope. We combined those two measurements of emission and absorption to estimate the density, pressure, and temperature of the ionized gas and that lets us better understand where this gas is coming from, said the lead author, Danish Krishnarato. Extending 25,000 light years, both above and below the core of the Milky Way, the Fermi bubbles were discovered in 2010 by the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope. These high energetic outflows of gas are moving away from the center of the galaxy at millions of miles per hour. But while the source of the phenomenon has been concluded to date back millions of years ago, the events that created the bubbles remain a mystery. Very interesting, this whole Fermi bubble story. I was interested in that years ago when it first came out, and uh, they're still trying to figure out exactly what the heck is going on there. I have an idea that it's probably generated somehow by the uh, object, whatever it is, whether you believe in black holes or whether you don't, there's something at the center of our galaxy, and it's a highly energetic object, 
and I'm guessing that these are some sort of a result of, of, of that particular phenomenon. Anyway, um, we've got a 4K night launch of SpaceX Starlink, courtesy of Astromutt over there at GLP. Shout out to the folks over there at Godlike Productions. Some crazy shit going on over there, let me tell you. Um, Marco Giangeli on Twitter, forget carriers and joint strike fighters, only artificial intelligence can protect Britain against 21st century threats, top general warns. That sounds a lot like Skynet from the Terminator series. Uh, here is the launching of a full-size car into space with dynamite. That's kind of a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to work. Idea, switch all police ammunition to tranquilizer darts. <laughs> okay. Um, Stephen Hawking, before he died, he um, made some calculations and actually wrote it down and said that he actually believed that the Mayan calendar uh, had been miscalculated by the Maya by some eight years and that 2020 was the actual end of the Mayan calendar or the rollover of the Mayan calendar, whatever it is. Um, I'll read this real quickly, just because I was very interested back in 2012. Uh, Stephen Hawking, Mayans miscalculated by eight years. 2020 is the actual end of civilization. He wrote this on Friday, December 21st, 2012, which was supposedly, you know, the day when everything was going to shift, uh, according to many, uh, many prognosticators. At any rate, that's kind of interesting that he wrote it on the winter solstice of December 2012. All right, from Cambridge, England. In an interview with New Scientist magazine, world-renowned theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking has claimed the Mayan calendar's apocalyptic end date of 2012 is based on flawed calculations. Hawking, a former professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge, has long been a critic of the pseudoscience surrounding doomsday predictions. And in the case of claims that the Mayan calendar points to the world ending on today's date, he believes a simple mathematical error has been made. In many ways, the Mayans were way ahead of their time, Hawking said, but in other ways, they were a little too clever for their own good. In this instance, they made the mistake of double-counting bank holidays, meaning their calendar isn't due to run out for a further eight years. People should actually be worrying about 2020. That's the real end of the civilized world. <laughs> and I don't know if he wrote that in jest or not, because... Uh, I don't understand what he means by bank, <laughs> bank holidays, but at any rate, uh, Stephen Hawking, either musing or not, that the Mayan end date is actually this year, not uh, eight years ago. Uh, contact tracing. I'm not going to play this tonight, but I will play it at some point. Um, here's a, a guy recording a rare and fascinating journey uh, boarding a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine in the Arctic. Uh, there's a little more information about Geronimo. Okay, what else we got here on the forum? Uh, Israel's alpha radiation treatment shows 100% rate of tumor shrinkage, so more hope on the cancer cure front. We'll have to keep our eyes on that one and see if it disappears into the closet like so many others. Automatic golf club replaces a bag of clubs with one. This guy hooked up a couple of servo motors and st and, uh, and hydraulics, uh, on onto like a golf club and and he can shift the the 
face of the club and change the angle. And I don't think it's very practical, but it was kind of fun. Uh, Harvard doctors wear face masks during sex to help avoid catching COVID. I don't know about that. Uh, Dick Gregory. I posted some stuff from Dick Gregory, who we featured on the program last week. Wonderful Dick Gregory. And uh, uh, KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov. That's a very interesting 15 minutes. Uh, check out that YouTube from a KGB defector talking about mind control. And uh, again, some 30 years of hindsight uh, on that particular uh, program. Anyway, a bunch of interesting stuff there on the, uh, on the forum. I'm going to wrap it up, though, and tell you I appreciate you listening to the program. We're going to play a piece of music here from our featured artists of the evening before I say goodbye. Come on back next week. I'm not sure what we're doing. I'm going to get my act together and start getting some guests back to appear on the program. I kind of uh, slacked uh, for a while during the hiatus from the studio here because I wasn't very, doing a very good job of production from my home uh, or from my apartment. And now that I'm back here in the studio, I should be able to start lining up some more of quality interviews with folks that are doing interesting work in interesting fields. So if you have any interest in that uh, or you have ideas for what you might like to hear, please feel free to get a hold of me. Once again, on the web at MikeHagan.com, you can send me email from the website or you can send it directly to MikeHagan at MikeHagan.com. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and you can join me on the Radio Orbit Forum which again can be visited directly from the front page of the website at mikehagan.com. All right. All right. Appreciate y'all listening. Had a good time tonight. I hope you enjoyed the program. We'll uh, come on back and do it again next week. One more from our featured musicians of the evening. They are called Trills. And this one is called Mud and Gold. Be cool to yourself. Be cool to other people. Take care. And uh, we'll talk to you later.
I know.